All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Is the world rapidly descending into environmental decay and more importantly, is capitalism to blame? Because the left sure seems to think so and they've got a lot of ideas on how exactly they plan to fix it. And one of the ideas that they've decided to do is the Green New Deal. We've all heard of that at the federal level. But what's going on at the state level? Because in Virginia, they passed what's known as the Virginia Clean Energy Act. And there's a lot of stuff with this that we're gonna go over today to go into the details because there's narrative and then there's policy. And we're gonna go ahead and make the distinction today on making the argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. All right, so the first thing that we need to do is let's go over some of the common narratives that we hear with respect to the climate. Now, I think all of us remember back in the 1970s, or at least some of us remember back in the 1970s, where Time Magazine had it on its cover that we were headed for an ice age, and this was going to be a huge problem. You actually had certain environmental scientists suggesting that we should probably, you know, really do something about the polar ice caps so that we weren't overcome by an ice age that was just going to destroy crops and, and you know, wipe out civilization as we knew it. And we all know that later on that didn't actually happen. And then a little bit later, we heard that all the rage was global warming, right? The, the planet was heating and it was all our fault, right? If you owned an SUV, this was your fault. You were destroying the planet. You were destroying the rainforest if you, you know, ate beef. And they had, a, they had a bunch of issues with that. They had a bunch of policy positions that they wanted to lay out in order to help the planet from global warming. And then all of a sudden, well, it, it turned out that global warming wasn't exactly the issue that they were claiming it was. You know, you know, Florida is not underwater right now. All beachfront property has not been destroyed by rising ocean levels. That's not to say that there aren't issues, but needless to say, there are little hockey stick graphs and all of our, you know, computer modeling and predictions that we were being told would wipe out the planet within a couple of decades. You know, not only did it not come true, but it's not going to come true, at least not anytime soon. And so a lot of us have become very, very skeptical of these outlandish claims that the left makes with respect to the environment. And the latest trend has been climate change, right? So it was an ice age in the 70s. It was global warming in the 90s and the early 2000s. And, and now it's all about climate change, which climate change is really easy to prove because, yes, the climate changes. The real question is, is what sort of human involvement is responsible for what we perceive to be radical or potentially dangerous climate change. And here's what I find so interesting is that pretty much every time the left talks about climate change, they also have a solution that they offer for it. 
And that solution almost always includes more government regulation, more control over the economy, more infringement on private property rights, because according to them, this is what's going to save the planet, right? We need more global action. And what I want to talk about is when they put that action into place, like when they have the control in the legislature and they can actually pass legislation in order to achieve the sort of environmental policy that they think is going to save all of us, what does it look like? Because there's there's a really interesting correlation between arguments that the left is currently making to save the planet versus arguments that the left used to make with respect to saving the economy. And I think it's very important to draw these, to, to draw these comparisons that they're making because then it gives us some insight into what it, they may be really after. Right, the, the saving the planet sounds great. It's a rallying cry that you can, you can really get people on board with. But ultimately, what do they plan to do in order to save the planet? And what are they telling us with respect to the sort of objectives they're going to achieve if we let them put in the policy prescriptions that they have laid out for us? So let's take a look specifically at the Virginia, Virginia Clean Energy Act, which was dubbed by a lot of us as the Virginia version of the Green New Deal. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at that. So one of the things that became very obvious with respect to what the Virginia Clean Energy Act would do, and, and keep in mind, this is policies like this have been implemented in other states as well. In fact, the Virginia Clean Energy Act took a lot of our emission standards and actually tied it to California, right? So this is, this is states copying other states, copying the Green New Deal at the federal level. And one of the things that we found out was that Virginia's average electricity costs are actually higher than the national average, and that's according to the U.S. Uh, Energy Information Administration. And this is despite the fact that we actually consume less energy per capita. So our, our energy costs are already high. So th this begs the question, if you put in something like the Virginia Clean Energy Act, which has all kinds of restrictions, like we're going to eliminate fossil fuels by 2050, and we're going to put a lot of tax subsidization into wind and solar and things like that, then, then what's going to actually happen to energy bills, right? Because there's your intentions, and your intention is we're going to save the planet, and we're going to create all these green energy jobs. But what does it actually mean? Well, one of the things that we found out, and this, is, this comes um, from SUVGOP, which is a, a group in Northern Virginia that started to really dig into the policy, and they started to ask these very important questions. It's like, okay, this is what you want to achieve, but what is it going to actually do? And here's what we found. The Virginia Clean Energy Act will actually raise the average household utility bill by $800 per year. So keep in mind, in Virginia, our energy consumption is, is actually lower than the national average. Our prices are already higher, and now we're going to tack on an additional $800 in order to implement the Virginia Clean Energy Act. Um, the proposal also made Virginia the top solar producing state in the nation. And a lot of people think, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Except here's the problem. Virginia is number one in solar projects, but we're number 24th in actual sunshine. So, so the fuel that you actually need for solar panels, we're 24th in the nation, even though we're number one in solar projects. And the, and the only reason those solar projects are taking place is as a result of mass, massive tax subsidization. All right? So it's not as if a bunch of people decided that, you know what, this makes a lot of economic sense for me individually to get a solar panel or that it was something where somebody said, you know what, I'm really concerned about the environment, and so I'm going to pay the additional cost in order to get 
solar panel. No, no, that's not what happened. What happened was is the government of Virginia came down and said, we're going to emphasize this, whether you like it or not, and it's going to cause all of your energy bills to go up $800 a year so we can push a solar solution in a state that is 24th in actual sunshine. All right, but it doesn't stop there. Because again, the same people that are making the claim that we absolutely need this in order to protect the environment. So what will it actually require in order to get Virginia up to the point where we can eliminate fossil fuels by 2050? Like, what does that require for our grid? Well, in order to do that, nearly 500 acres of forest will have to be clear cut for the new solar farms that are mandated. And we've seen a huge problem all over our rural areas. In fact, this is really interesting for a lot of us because if you've ever seen that, that you know, a person driving with a bumper sticker on the car that says, farmland lost is lost forever. Well, it turns out that when they want to put in all these industrial solar fields, are they putting them in the cities? No, no, no. They're coming in and they're clear-cutting forests up to 500 acres worth. And they're buying up farmland because it's cheaper to buy land that is zoned agricultural. So what do they do? They come in, they destroy the crops, they put in these solar panels, and then for a while they didn't even have the proper bonding issues. So for instance, a company could come in, and we saw this in Virginia, foreign companies would come in, and because of the subsidies, they could offer a, a much higher rate for the land that was, that was uh, the return that was currently producing crops. They could buy that farmland, zoned agricultural, get rid of the crops, and then put up solar fields. And a lot of these solar panels, we, we have no idea what it ultimately does to the soil long term. And a lot of these panels are going to have to be decommissioned at some point. So even when you're talking about potential benefits with respect to your energy policy, what they're, what they're oftentimes doing is they're taking in the initial cost of setting all of this up with all the tax subsidization, but they're not really taking into account the long-term cost associated with having to take one solar panel out, put other solar panels in, new and developing technology. And so this creates a huge issue with respect to farmland that is now wiped out or forestry that is now wiped out to make way for solar industrial solar fields that are not actually meeting our energy needs and causing all of our prices to go up, right? But it doesn't stop there. Because if you look at the overall in Virginia, like where do we get our energy? Well, 12% of our energy comes from coal, 42% from nuclear, 42% from national gas, and only 5% from wind, solar, hydro, and other renewables, right? So 5% of our total energy is coming from those renewables and they want that to be a significant portion. So if you look at the 12% for coal, if you look at the 42% from natural gas and other things, we're, we're talking about a scenario where close to 50% of our energy needs that are, that are currently being sourced through fossil fuels are gonna have to be gone by 2050. And the only way they can think to do this is through massive subsidization, right? And government intervention into the economy, into agriculture and into energy policy. And I have to say, like to, to some degree, you're living in a dream world. If you honestly believe that by 2050, we're going to be able to achieve this under the government programs that they're pushing. And the reason why I say that specifically is because I, I want everyone to understand something. There's, there's, there's this common misconception that conservatives or libertarians or whatever it is, that we're somehow anti-green energy. And that's not true. In fact, that's completely false. Typically, the conservative position is like, look, we want to make use of all available energy resources in order to meet the requirements. 
That doesn't mean that we don't want safety protocols. It doesn't mean that we don't want to take care of our environment. We just simply understand that there is a cost-benefit analysis here. And one of the things that is, I think, very in interesting about this entire debate is that if you look at the countries that are most concerned about environmental policy, here's what you're going to find. They're not centrally planned socialist economies, right? They're capitalist economies that have reached a level of wealth to where we're not as concerned about people dying on the road from starvation. We're not concerned about civil strife within our countries. We're not concerned about people not having access to healthcare on the degree that a lot of these other countries are. And so there's a lot of time to be concerned about other things such as the environment. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is whenever the left says that in order to save the planet, what they require is more government power, more government intervention into the economy, more government subsidization, more central planning, less property rights. The first question that we should ask back is, okay, great, show me a country that has instituted all of those policies and tell me which one of them you think has a drastically better environmental plan than the United States or even Western capitalist countries. And the answer you're gonna get back is probably gonna be a stunned deer in the headlights look because the countries that do implement the sort of central planning, the sort of socialized control of the economy that they seem to be advocating for in many respects, not in all, but in many respects, don't produce better environmental outcomes. And so one of the problems that I have with the way a lot of conservatives argue about climate change is that there's this attitude that kind of comes through as if we don't care and allows the left to caricature us especially to younger people, and, and cause them to believe that they're the only ones fighting on behalf of their interests in order to have clean drinking water, breathable air, and sustainable energy. But the reality does not match that narrative. And so one of the things I wanna do in this episode is I wanna equip conservatives with the arguments we should be making with respect to being good stewards of our environment while at the same time producing the energy needs that we require in order to provide the products and services that everyone enjoys and actually makes people's lives better. So step one, we've already kind of talked about the, you know, the, the predictions that have been made. And, and, and again, these, these grotesque predictions that have been made up based off of computer models that don't take into account that human beings actually change their behavior based off of what is going on. Right? They just take a particular number and they project it way out into the future and they say, okay, you know, provided that all these numbers are accurate, this is going to be the result and, you know, again, Hawaii is going to be underwater. We already know that that doesn't actually play out. That doesn't actually work. And so a lot of times when conservatives hear these sorts of predictions, it causes us to really question the science with respect to climate change. And, and to some degree, that's appropriate because ultimately science is not a, a fixed thing with respect to a particular expert says something and, and they're a scientist and so therefore that's what the science says. Or even consensus-based science, which is, well, 98% of the scientists that contributed to this particular paper for the UN came to this conclusion and so therefore that's what we should do. No, science is based off of observable reality and going about certain analytical processes in order to determine what is happening and what are the potential causes. Now, the secondary consideration, that, that's what science gives us, right? Science gives us, here's the evidence based off of what we see, the data that we used, right? And they're supposed to be transparent in this entire process. And therefore, we think this is what's going to happen. Now, the left oftentimes uses that to say, oh, well, this is absolutely what's going to happen. And so the, pre the prescription 
is for the government to have more power in order to prevent this from happening. The conservative position is not to say we throw out the science. The conservative position is to say, no, we, we want to see different scientific analysis using a variety of numbers in order to come to rational conclusions. And what we do know is that if you just attempt to completely wipe out fossil fuels and replace it with wind and solar, you are not going to meet the energy consumption needs that we, we currently require. Uh, one of the reasons why poverty has been reduced so significantly over the last 100 years, one of the reasons why starvation has been reduced significantly over the last 100 years, one of the reasons why fewer people die as a result of, you know, climactic, um, uh, you know, events like hurricanes or tornadoes or droughts or things like that is because we have the ability to harness energy in order to meet the demands that arise when we do have some sort of climactic event. Right, so that needs to be taken into consideration whenever we're looking at policy. But here's a couple of ways that conservatives can talk about this that I think would reinforce the, um, the true statement that we are concerned about the environment, that obviously we want clean drinking water, we want the air to be clean, we want people to be able to be you know, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and start businesses, but we also want them to do it in a way that is, is responsible from not only an environmental perspective, but also from the perspective of understanding that when you pollute or when you do something that, uh, you know, potentially causes damage to the water supply, you are affecting other people. You're now violating their rights. And that is, I think, one of the significant differences between the way the right looks at this issue versus the way the left looks at this issue. And it's also one of the reasons why I think the right is so skeptical of the left solution is because the left is offering us the same solutions that they used to offer us for economic reasons, right? It was in the, in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, et cetera, where they were making this argument that more central planning of the economy, more command and control and power in the hands of politicians, less property rights, less capitalism, that would yield better economic results. Well, we saw firsthand, especially with the fall of the Soviet Union, that wasn't true. The very things they were prescribing to make our lives better with respect to wealth didn't actually produce the results they were promising us. And the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and us being able to take an, a, a look at what was actually going on in those centrally planned economies as opposed to what those centrally planned economies were telling us what was going on, completely tore the veil away and demonstrated that they'd done a horrible job and that the economic well-being of their citizens was far worse off as a result of all of their central planning and government control. So they could no longer make a rational, empirical economic argument for what they, why what they were proposing would have produced better economic results. And so all of a sudden the argument shifted and the argument became, well, no, we're not doing this because we claim it's going to provide better economic results necessarily. Now we're making this claim because it's the only way we can save the planet from absolute devastation and disaster. And I'm sorry, but those of us on, on the conservative side, we have a right to be skeptical of that especially when the data that you're relying on in order to push that sort of narrative never seems to play out, right? When, when you're telling us the polar ice caps are going to be gone by the early 2000s and they're not, when you're telling us that the polar bears are going to be extinct and they're not, when you tell us that a lot of coastal regions are going to be underwater and they're not, right? We have a right to come back and say, okay, there's something wrong with the models that you're using. And the fact that when a model is demonstrated to be inaccurate, you just switch to a different model, which reinforces your, your already you know, arrived at position 
Well, then now we're going to start to question, are you really using science or have you already developed a policy prescription and now you're just going for any data that will justify the policy positions that you want? Right? That is an honest question for us to ask. But the thing we need to understand as conservatives is, while it is perfectly fine to point out why there's, you know, why we're skeptical that the, the argument that they, were, they used to use for economic well-being is now being used for environmental well-being. While it's perfectly appropriate for us to you know, display skepticism with respect to some of the models that they're using, or this kind of ad hominem attack where every time we question a model or we question a policy, they automatically say, well, you don't care about the environment, right? It is perfectly acceptable for us to be skeptical of all of that. But I want to share a quick story. Um, because I, I think this helps illustrate in one way where conservatives are going wrong on this issue. So I was at a debate once and um, a Republican candidate, where all of us were asked questions about global warming or climate change. I think it was climate change specifically. And one candidate said, well, it's, it's all a hoax. And, and keep in mind, this was at a university. So you have a lot of students there and a lot of students that might lean a little bit more conservative. And what they heard was, is that a Republican was essentially dismissing the issue outright, right? It was all a hoax, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, carry on as usual. And instantly at that point, they didn't think he was a credible source with respect to discussing this issue. So even if he had good things to say about what we should do, or what, uh, what policies would be more effective in order to meet our energy needs while at the same time being good stewards of the environment, which we should all want to be, he was immediately relegated to you know, you know, the outer regions of this guy doesn't understand anything or he's just repeating a, a popular narrative that he thinks is going to uh, appeal to a certain base. But he's not willing to actually address this issue, um, even if he thinks it's not as significant as you know, some of the, the models might predict. And so I had an opportunity to answer this question. And again, the question was very generic. What should we do about climate change? And so the first thing I did was ask a question back. Like, what do you mean? Do you mean like just climate changing as a part of natural processes that happen throughout world history? Because obviously we know that there's been ice ages in the past. There's been many ice ages. There's been global warming periods. Like we, we know this has happened throughout history, right? This is not you know, unique to our time. Or do you mean anthropogenic climate change? Do you mean man-made or, or human-caused climate change? And, and the reason why I did that is because I wanted to define terms. And I wanted to demonstrate to my audience that it's not that I don't think climate change can potentially be an issue, that this is really a discussion of degree and then a discussion about which policies will actually achieve the desired end state. Because the moment we just focus exclusively on bad models or bad science or hyperbolic language or a bunch of people basically advocating socialism in the name of climate change, while that skepticism may be legitimate, it doesn't actually address the issue. And the issue is, is that obviously people affect the environment. Now, the degree to which they do is debatable, but clearly people infect, uh, affect the environment. We all understand this. We know this. We know that industry, there's going to be some degree of pollution. And really, this is a question of cost-benefit analysis in order to make sure that we can sure that people get the goods and services that they need, but that we are also taking care of the environment so that we can sustain it long-term, right? There's nothing wrong with that as a desire. 
So when we talk about our policies, there's a couple of things I, I want us to do a better job of expressing. And that leads me to another story because I had a student call me up. Actually, his, his mother called me up first and said, you know, my student's doing a project on some legislation in Virginia with respect to environmental policy. And he can't seem to get his local um, elected official to call him back. You know, we, we work together. Would you mind talking to him? I said, I'd be happy to. And so the student calls me up. And the first thing that he says is to say, you know, how do we, how do we fight back against climate deniers? And I asked him, I said, can you tell me why you use that term, climate deniers or climate change deniers? I said, because honestly, I don't, I, I'm a conservative, right? I'm, I'm an elected Republican. I don't know a single person that denies the existence of climate change or that the, the climate changes or go through season or, or and, I, and I don't know a single conservative that doesn't believe that people can affect the climate. So what do you mean by climate change deniers? And it was interesting because I could tell that was the first time he had ever been asked that question. And, and what it really came down to as we, as we had this conversation was that in school, he had essentially been taught a singular narrative. And that singular narrative was that one, climate change was you know, significantly important, that um, human activity was the leading cause of climate change, and that there that government solutions were absolutely mandatory, right? Like there, there was no discussion about it. It was, it was never a question of what the government policy would be. It was always a question of, you know, how far and how fast and how much should we regulate? And anybody that had a problem with those regulations was all of a sudden a climate science or a climate change denier. And so the first thing I did is I walked it back and I said, well, look, again, I, I think you're debating against a straw man. I think you're, you're debating against something that doesn't really exist in, in any significant form. Now, that's not to say that there's some people out, I mean, there's people out there that think the earth is flat, right? There's always gonna be some people. I said, but from a policy perspective, as, as I look at my fellow conservatives in the General Assembly, as we're voting on legislation, there's not a single person there that doesn't think the climate's important, that doesn't think the earth's important, that doesn't think that we have some responsibility in order to be good stewards. Nobody believes that. I said, so what this, what this really comes down to is how bad do you think it is, what degree, and what are the proper policies? And the moment, I, the moment we did that, it changed the nature of the conversation because now I wasn't a climate change denier or I wasn't a climate science denier. I was someone that agreed with him that protecting the environment is important and now it's a question of what's the best way to do it. And one of the questions I asked him was the question I posed earlier on this podcast. I said, if the solution really is more government control over the economy, more government subsidization of green energy, um, more you know, eroding of, of private property rights in order to give the state more control. I said, can you point to the countries that have implemented those policies that you believe have a climate policy or a, or a green energy that you would like to emulate? Right? And he couldn't come up with one. And I said, well, let me offer you some examples. Right? There was the former Soviet Union. There was China. There's Venezuela. There's Cuba. There's Angola. We can go through the list. All of them had centrally planned economies. All of them have the sort of government apparatus where executives could immediately step in at any point and reallocate resources toward whatever they wanted, could set whatever environmental policy or goals that they wanted, could strip people of their property rights whenever they wanted, and none of them had an environmental policy that we would want to emulate. 
And then I pointed out that it was actually your Western capitalist countries that had done a far better job of not only meeting things like energy requirements, but also taking care of and preserving the environment. I said, so right off the bat, if your central premise, if your foundational premise is more government equals better environment, I'm going to point out that historically that doesn't seem to be accurate. That doesn't seem to play out. Now, does that mean that there's no role for government? No, I don't think that at all. But the question is, is that where, where is government intervention appropriate? And what I would suggest is that far from eroding property rights, you actually want to strengthen property rights. And here's the reason why. If a company sets up a factory and they're polluting, whether it's the air or the water or the soil or whatever else it might be, and that is affecting somebody else. If you have strong property rights, that person can now sue that company as a result of a trespass, right? That company has done something which has devalued the property of somebody else. And in free market economies with strong property rights, you're not permitted to do that. You have, there has to be some sort of compensation mechanism. And so there's a couple of different ways that you can address that issue when it takes place. And, and understand something. There have been people that won court cases because they, hang, they, they hung their laundry out to dry in a city and a factory was putting so much soot into the air that it was affecting their laundry that they took the, the company to court and won. And they won not based off a violation of environmental policy, they won based off of a violation of property rights. And what's so interesting about that is that when the case is won as a result of property rights as opposed to regulation, right, just arbitrary government environmental regulation, is that it not only means that that person that was the victim of the trespass gets compensated, what it does is it tells the company that if you continue to pollute in this manner, if, if you don't come up with better mechanisms to control the results of your output or your production mechanisms, then you're going to get sued and that's going to cause your prices to go up. And so now they have a natural incentive built into the marketplace in order to reduce the amount of pollution that they're engaging in in order to create the product that they have, lest they show up in court and get sued. But that doesn't exist, that dynamic doesn't exist if you don't have strong property rights. Now, what about the claim that, well, we have to have the government subsidizing green energy because if we don't have tax dollars going toward green energy, it's not going to naturally develop because fossil fuels are so much cheaper. Well, it is generally speaking true that fossil fuels are generally cheaper and far more reliable than a lot of your renewable energy, especially with the initial, uh, with the uh, long-term costs and especially with the storage costs. Because the, the amount of money that goes into creating a battery to store electrical charges versus the amount of energy that you have in a barrel of oil is very, very different. And it's significantly cheaper to have the barrel of oil. So obviously, there, there is some discrepancy with respect to how cost effective it is to engage in green energy technology versus fossil fuels. However, the long-term benefit, the long-term market benefit, so assuming no government intervention, the question is, is that would it still make sense to develop green technology? And the answer is yes, we know it is because people have actively engaged in doing this and creating this technology even without government subsidies. People have actually purchased it even without government subsidies. And why is that? Well, because there's, a, there's times where the amount of energy it takes to, you know, you, again, I'm not going to lug around a, a, a barrel of oil with me, right? I'm not going to lug around gasoline wherever I go. 
Um, or I might live in a particular area where I've got a lot of sunshine or I've got a lot of wind. And so it makes sense for me economically on an individual level to make the upfront investment in a solar panel or some other sort of wind technology in order to reduce my overall energy costs. Not to mention the fact that here's what ends up happening in a competitive environment. So if right now fossil fuels are significantly cheaper than green energy, then what would naturally happen without government intervention is green energy technology will develop in the way that makes the most sense with respect to a competitive marketplace, which means your research and development dollars are gonna focus on those areas where green energy makes the most sense from a viability standpoint, right? They're not gonna waste their time trying to compete with fossil fuels in areas where they can't possibly compete. Instead, they're gonna focus their energy on areas where they are competitive. But if the government comes in and immediately starts subsidizing green energy, then you get, you get uh, situations like in Nevada or Solyndra with California, where all of a sudden you have Solyndra bundling millions of dollars for Barack Obama, he gets an office, and then all of a sudden Solyndra <laughs> gets $500 million in tax subsidization only to go bankrupt shortly afterwards. Because ultimately, when you're just throwing tax dollars at something, you're doing, one of, you're doing a couple of things. One, you're not automatically making it more competitive in the marketplace especially if there's certain long-term deficiencies, which that you know, one-time or even sustained subsidization is not gonna make up for. But the other thing that you're doing is you're, reorient, you're reorienting the focus of the green energy company, whatever it is, wind, solar, et cetera. You're reorienting their focus away from the marketplace where they need to be competitive in order to be sustainable toward lobbying and government bureaucrats. Because now what you've told them is, you don't get paid based off of producing a product that people want. Now you get paid by doing what a politician wants you to do. And a lot of times when politicians put out these grants or these subsidies, they're not doing it based off of you know, the, the best understanding of where the marketplace is or where the uh, technological advancement for a particular industry is. They're just doing it in order to be able to go back to their constituents and say, look at how good I am on the environment. And so now what you've done is you've perverted the entire research and development process away from marketable items toward items that are only good if they meet certain criteria that a bureaucracy has come up with. So you're actually hurting the research and development of green energy technology by creating this fake environment where people don't have to compete for consumers, they only have to compete for politicians. And this is dangerous in every industry. And we see it in other industries as well that have nothing to do with energy. When all of a sudden a company becomes reliant upon subsidies in order to survive, it doesn't innovate it as well. It's not as competitive because it's not responsive to consumer demand. And in the long run, it is not sustainable. And so you're now wasting money on green technology that is never gonna get you what you actually want from an environmental perspective because you've perverted the process. Whereas if you would have allowed that company to be able to test, to try, and to focus in on those areas where they were the most competitive, 
you would have allowed them to develop useful technologies which can then be expanded to become more competitive with fossil fuels because obviously there is some limitation with respect to the overall amount of fossil fuels available. Now, engines can become more efficient, new technologies can make it easier to get those fossil fuels, but we understand on some level it's a finite resource, whereas hydropower or wind power or solar panel are, are far more long-lasting uh, on, you know, depending on how far you push out the timeline. So the real question is, is that how do we make sure these companies are as competitive as possible? And the way you do that is not by regulating or subsidizing. The way you do that is by removing the taxes and regulatory barriers so it becomes easier for them to be able to produce these technologies. But they have to be able to produce them in accordance with market demand, not political demand. And we actually see the, one of the latest cases of this is Germany, which has been bragging for years about how green its energy policy is, is now getting desperate and is about to have to give a bunch of money to Russia in order to, get, in order to meet their energy consumption requirements. So now, so now they're going to give a bunch of money to a bunch of Russian oligarchs in order to make their economy run. So here's the bottom line, right? As you're looking at, at the, the full spectrum of arguments that we have at our disposal, I'll say it again. It is perfectly fine to challenge some of the presuppositions that the left is making with respect to the models that they use or with respect to the dire predictions that have never come true or with respect to the fact that they are using an eerily similar argument for climate change that they used to use for just base economics. That is all perfectly acceptable to bring that out. But the next thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that we're actually on the same sheet of music when it comes to our objectives. And I think all of our objectives is to be able to meet our energy needs while at the same time protecting the environment. And there is a lot of potential within green energy and renewables. There's an, an incredible amount of potential. But if we truly want to recognize that potential, then we're going to have to make sure that it is actually competitive in the free market, not completely beholden to government subsidies and politicians essentially stealing money from one person and giving it to a green energy company that happens to have better lobbyists, right? That is not, first of all, that is not fair on an economic or moral level. And secondly, because of the perverse incentives which are created, it's not actually good for green energy in the long term. So the more that we can keep them focused on meeting consumer demand, as opposed to political demand, the better a product that we're going to get and what it's going to do is as that pendulum swings and green energy technology becomes better, more efficient, more effective as it deals with storage capacity issues and a number of other things, it will naturally start to become a significantly larger portion overall of our overall energy consumption. And that's a good thing, right? We're, we are not against that. It's very important that people on the left understand this. We are not against that. We just think that there is a natural process that that follows, which is far more effective and efficient in the long term than politicians coming in trying to score political points or handing out millions of tax dollars to their buddies that bundled for them in campaigns. Right? That's not the way to do it. And ultimately, we do not want to diminish property rights because property rights are the very thing that gives someone the ability to sue somebody for damages when you do have someone engaging in pollution, which is excessive. Right, so there it is. Remain skeptical of the arguments. Remain skeptical of the predictions. Always challenge the science with other science. Always, always have evidence-based arguments. 
Make sure that we understand that we're all on the same sheet of music with wanting to meet energy consumption needs while at the same time in protecting the environment. And then demonstrate how market forces and, and property rights and less taxes and less government interference will actually achieve the end results that the left claims to want. And one of the questions I love to pose to people, and this is one I encourage you to use because you'll get some really weird looks when you do it. I once asked somebody, I said, if we found out tomorrow, like, like let's say climate change is every bit the issue and the predictions are every bit as dire and accurate as you think they are. And we could demonstrate that the best way to solve that issue was through more free markets, more property rights, less government intervention and less government subsidies would you still be as concerned about the environment as you currently claim to be? And what I find is a lot of people on the left all of a sudden pause. And what that does is it gives you an indication on are they fighting for the environment or are they fighting for government control that they've always wanted and climate change is nothing more than the latest excuse in order to argue for it. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us. Also, I want to make sure you understand something. There is a good video that talks more about the specifics of the Virginia Clean Energy Act. You can go to SUVGOP. Just Google SUVGOP. You can go on there. They've got a couple videos on there that talk specifically about what the Virginia Clean Energy Act does, the costs associated with it, the farmland lost, the trees cut down, and they do a really good job of making a large comprehensive argument not just from an economic standpoint, which is what you've typically come to expect from conservatives, but also from an environmental aspect on why this is not good policy going forward and why it needs to be overturned. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.